BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, talk about some things that actually matter, and get to the information we need to better discern the times we live in, because that's really what consuming the news is supposed to be all about, right? Although a lot of us fail at it. We're going to talk about that a couple different ways on this show. we got two different guests today, Justice Hudson, who is uh, talking about the rise of the folk reporters. This is something... I believe in. I think it's important. Something I try to support. And we're going to talk to him. He is one. He's just somebody who goes to his city council meetings, covers the politics of his city in the spare time that he has. He's going to talk about that, what it means, why it's important, and how it fits into having and all of the above media consumption that we should all be doing. Also, a favorite of the program, a favorite of y'all, because you keep telling me every time she comes on how much you enjoy her. Sarah Stuck. Our friend from over in the UK is back talking another one of her pieces on presidential history. This time we're talking dead presidents. No, not the bank robbing movie. That was excellent, by the way. This is about how presidents died in office, not just the assassination, sometimes sickness, sometimes illness, and also how other presidents, because every president, believe it or not, like all the rest of us, they die. It has historical meaning and context we're going to talk about with Sarah Stook. Some great information you may not know. Love talking history. Uh, but first, we got to talk about a story that I don't want to talk about. I don't like covering it. I don't like writing about it. I don't like reading about it. I don't like discussing it. And I'll tell you why in just a second. Hunter Biden. Here's one reason I don't like this story. It's not because I don't think Hunter Biden has a lot of dirty laundry and now we know committed crimes because he's agreed to a plea deal with him, which means he admits to them there's no debating that he has committed crimes. There's no debating that he has a mess of a personal life. There's no debating his drug use. There's no debating his flaunting of the bad things he does. The reason I don't like the Hunter Biden story is not because Hunter Biden doesn't deserve probably criminal punishment, if not scorn for the way he's behaved himself despite being a child of immense privilege. I don't like it because every time we try to discuss something positive, there's always that person online. Well, what about Hunter Biden? If I submit any kind of criticism whatsoever towards anything on the right, whether it's Trump or Congress or anything, well, what about Hunter Biden? 
he has become this absolute talisman for some folks that will absolutely excuse any wrongdoing whatsoever by anybody else. By the way, the right's not alone in this. The left does this. Trump does not excuse anybody's behavior on the left. Hunter Biden does not excuse anybody's behavior on the right. Can we break this down really, really simply real quick? I know this is a little condescending, but we have to teach to the lowest level here. Nothing Donald Trump did wrong is excused by anything that Hunter Biden did wrong and vice versa. Nor does anything anybody else in the history have ever done wrong excuse anything Donald Trump ever did wrong, nor does it excuse anything Hunter Biden did wrong. Everybody got that? We Do we need to put a graphic up on that? If you did something wrong, you're responsible for doing wrong. Doesn't matter if somebody else got away with it. Doesn't matter if somebody else did it before. If it's wrong, it's wrong. I hope these folks, if they did wrong, got persecuted. And I don't care if it's Hunter Biden or Donald Trump or anybody else. Donald Trump, by the way, who's got already over 30 indictments pending and more. Well, what about Hunter Biden? No. What about Hillary? No. Nobody made Donald Trump break the law except Donald Trump. That was his decision. Does politics come into play on how this has been prosecuted? Yes. There is a two-tiered justice system. Donald Trump and Hunter Biden are both in the upper tier. They are privileged. They get away with things nobody else gets away with. They get considerations nobody else gets away with. They get protection, and people have to tread lightly in investigating them because of who they are. But they're both doing wrong, and they both need to answer for it, both criminally and morally and in public opinion. But they won't because there's going to be supporters on both sides that's going to use them as the whatabout to try to excuse something else. Let's go to Punchbowl News real quick. The latest example is... Um, an associate of Hunter Biden named Devin Archer, who, by the way, is a convicted felon for ripping off uh, a uh, Native American casino, but we'll get to that in a minute. They, I, I read Punchball News every morning. We'll link to it. Make sure you throw them a follow. Good information on what's going on in Congress. I will read from it from here. Quoting from Punchball News, there was something for everyone in the Devin Archer behind closed doors appearances at the House Oversight Committee on Monday. Both Republicans and Democrats alike seized they're using seized here. I like when they pounce or seize, but it's fun too. Seized on portions of former Hunter Biden's associates' testimony to back up pre-existing claims about the Biden business family dealings. Here are our takeaways, and they go on to go through it. Let me repeat that. Republicans and Democrats alike seized on portions of the former Hunter Biden's associates' testimony to back up pre-existing claims. You can read this whole thing. It goes back and forth. Devin Archer's testimony confirms Joe Biden lied about X. But Hunter Bi- but President Biden never discussed X, Y, and Z. Those calls were about mundane subjects, said one Democrat. Democrats also pointed out that Biden talked to Hunter all the time because he's his son. Biden says hello, but magically puts the phone down. Republicans say Mr. Archer explicitly stated the unaware of a $5 million payment that was alleged on the tip form. That's the 1023 we've talked about before. On and on and on it goes. Back and forth, back and forth. Can we go back to that first line because that's the most important thing? Everybody going into this meeting got out exactly what they wanted because they went in it looking for exactly what they wanted. We're not untilling new ground here. Important note at the bottom of this, quoting from Punchbowl again, Archer is a convicted felon. Archer and two others were convicted in June of 2018 for defrauding a Native American tribe out of $60 million worth of bond last year. He was sentenced to a year in prison 
and was required to pay more than $15 million in restitution. He has not done that prison sentence yet. In fact, the DOJ was trying to get him to go to prison before he testified here. This is a big mess. Everybody involved here is pretty much a bad faith actor and dirty hands involved. Hunter, who's now, because he took a plea deal, also a convicted criminal. Archer's a convicted criminal. And this Burisma stuff's a mess. Here's the long and the short of it. That still doesn't excuse anything Donald Trump did, who's going to probably be on the ballot in the spring with a whole bunch of indictments for his own wrongdoing. And Hunter Biden isn't going to be on the ballot in 2024. So does President Biden have some complicity here? Probably. Is there some wrongdoing here? Sure. Joe Biden's a multimillionaire, basically from being in Congress for the better part of 50 years and being vice president for eight years and being president for four years. You're going to tell me there's no corruption in there anywhere? I'm not going to believe you. But if it looks like what happens in the GOP impeaches him over this, are they going to get in a conviction and get him thrown out of office over this? No, not just because the GOP doesn't control the Senate and this is not going to happen, but because there's probably not enough evidence here. If they get the evidence, fine, I'll be in front of the line, but they don't have it yet. Hunter Biden sold influence to get to his dad. His dad probably head padded and went along with it far too much. If he did more than that and directly benefited, when the evidence comes out, not just people saying stuff, then you've got a case. But right now, Hunter Biden is a nice red shirt for folks to wave from the right at people on the left. And the people on the left are guilty of doing the same thing with Trump. Meanwhile, two people, Hunter Biden and Donald Trump, are proving out that the justice system has two tiers. They're both in the upper tier, the privileged tier. They're not in the tier where they get a bail bond hearing that puts them in the system and turns them into a career criminal. They got privilege. They're in the upper tier of that two-tier justice system. And you need to be able to step back and have a grown folk talk and say they're both benefiting from this system. They're both benefiting from all this. And it's a big ungodly mess. More Heard Tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we're going to talk about something really important that a lot of folks don't know about, but it's starting to grow. And I think it's going to be really important to how we do things like what I do, news media coverage called folk reporting. We got to get one to talk to him. Here be one, Justin Hudson. He's got the Hudson editorial on Substack. I'm going to talk about what that is from the great state of West Virginia, which y'all know I love. Justice, how are you, sir? Great to have you. Good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time. I want to start with the nomenclature. I, I know what it is because, you know, we talk in some of the same circles, have some of the same friends, but this idea of a folk reporter, look, I, on top of everything else I do, I also write for a local paper. I can write stories based off the notes of a county commission meeting or a city meeting or when there's a board meeting of this or that or the other or like what's going on in Fayette County where I cover sometimes. You got a crisis with the water company or the service district or whatever. I can do that from afar. There's value in going to these meetings. In the old days, the local paper or whatever would send somebody to do that. That's not the media environment we live in anymore. There's a vacuum there. And that's kind of where this folk reporter idea has come in to start filling that knowledge gap in local areas. Did I explain that well? 
I think you explained it great. I think there's uh, also great power in empowering uh, just citizens to go out and interact with their government. You know, the meeting notes are great, uh, but they're, they, they can miss a lot of nuance that if you're not there on the ground, uh, you're not going to experience. And, and so I think that, that you explained it perfectly. Uh, it's all about getting people, folks, if you will, out there on the ground, uh, witnessing what government and their community is doing, and then getting that information out to the rest of their community, to the rest of the state. Yeah, and the thing about this is, I'm all for journalism. I'm for good journalism. I think journalism is really important. You don't have to have a whole lot of special training to just go on your social media or whatever platform you have and go, this commissioner said this, this city councilman said this, this group showed up to take the podium to say this, that, or the other, this school board meeting went this way. That's just reporting what happened. You don't really need special training for that other than maybe getting somebody to edit you and check your grammar, right? That's kind of the beauty of this thing is like anybody can go to these meetings. Anybody can put this information out there. We just need some people to actually do it. Right. You know, and people take it so many different ways. There are people who go on Twitter and give out that retelling of events. And there's such great value in that. And I've taken it uh, to where, you know, at the beginning I was writing articles, they were just write down the agenda in article form. And now I'm at the point where there's editorializing, uh, trying to get more information into a smaller bit, just like a news reporter would do. So there is not any training that anybody needs. Uh, you do need the confidence to be able to just show up in these rooms where, you know, oftentimes you might, uh, unless you're, I'm kind of a bombastic personality, so I can go into these situations and be confident and not be kind of uh, intimidated, uh, but not everybody's like that. So, uh, but ultimately, you know, government's there to, uh, you know, serve the people. Uh, and so if you can kind of muster up a little bit of uh, uh, confidence, you can get out there. Uh, you don't need training. You don't need to go to school for it. Uh, it helps if you have somebody to read over it, but you can read over it yourself. And as you do it and as you go forward, you know, at least in my experience, I've learned how to do things better, how to get better notes and how to kind of get it quicker. Uh, and I've learned what to look out for when I'm editing to make those pieces a little bit more well-rounded. Yeah, Justice Hudson joining us. Here's the thing I found when I first, because I just came off the street. I didn't have any ends when I first started writing and doing media. I was really surprised how many people were really willing to help you and were really willing to kind of give you guidance, especially people that take pride in their craft, whether it's writing or media or journalism or whatever. You know, I started writing. I had journalists start reaching out to me. It's like, hey, you need to do it this way. Were you surprised? And I know from your writing, you've had a lot of people do that with you. Once they find out that, oh, there's this folk reporter doing this, there is kind of an ecosystem of people that want you to succeed that are good people that'll be that advice for you. And they don't really charge you anything. They're happy to tell you those things. Did that surprise you? Cause it surprised me when I first started doing this stuff. Oh, it was amazing. Um, there are, are lots of journalists in the state who I respect so highly. Um, I read their work. Uh, I interact with them online. And uh, one of the biggest reasons why I started writing were things like Western Union Public Broadcasting for the for the work that they do. I was really inspired by those audio stories. So when I did this, I was uh, a little bit nervous that, uh, well, for one, that nobody would see it. And that two, if people did see it, that they would 
kind of uh, there would be a problem that there would be, you know, it's a weird world in media. You're rubbing shoulders with people who've gone to school for it, who've worked in it for a decade or more. And so I, I kind of was a little nervous. And then, man, when I put stories out there and I would hear from, you know, people from down in Charleston, people from across the state, and they would say, you know, keep it up. Let me know if you need any advice. This is how I've done it in the past. Uh, it was really amazing because uh, there's no other reason that they would do that other than, like you said, they love their craft, but also that they see somebody doing something, they want to help them out. And that just shows good people. I mean, that's what West Indians are about anyways, uh, but it's good to to have it confirmed again in, in this new line of work that I'm doing. Hudson joining us. There's something we both grew up in West Virginia. For folks that don't know, for all the problems in West Virginia, I've told people West Virginia's always had really, really good media, way punches way above its weight. It's been excellent. Um, lots of award-winning stuff. The Gazette has had a Pulitzer Prize in recent history. You go, I've done radio hits for West Virginia Radio Corporation. You go in the building down at 58 CHS, and it's like, you know, Peabody, Murrow, 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 you know, the whole wall's full. West Virginia's always had great media, but that's been endangered in the last few years. One of the reasons I started writing a local column again for just specific for West Virginia issues is there's a lapse. And it's it there's some malicious to some people, but a lot of it's just economics. Everything's nationalized. Local media is struggling. Everything's on the national narrative. When you're covering somewhere like Wheeling, West Virginia, where you cover, which is, you know, kind of almost a textbook small city, right? Like if you just looked at the picture, you go, oh, it's small city America, very picturesque an important city in the grand scheme in West Virginia stuff. There's a media gap for markets like Wheeling. And then that's where this folk reporting comes back in again. It's not really a new thing. It's just a new spin filling in a gap of something that we should have been doing all along, isn't it? Definitely. And, you know, I got to give credit to the media that is in town. Uh, we've got a couple TV stations, we've got our newspaper, and uh, their coverage, it's not that there's necessarily anything wrong with it, but I would say probably the, probably the biggest uh, consistency when you talk about that with people, when you talk about these legacy or established media, is that they lack nuance or they lack uh, kind of a bigger picture uh, or a fuller reporting or, you know, I've heard all sorts of things. And so they'll send people to events and they'll write things about it but especially you know with our tv stations they're bite-sized articles that are a couple paragraphs and uh people have their opinions about the newspaper too for for political spin so something that i've been surprised about too is that when i put my work out about local government meetings i will get people that are elected officials that work for the city uh, my friends, uh, random people who just happen to read my stuff, and they'll say, it's really amazing what you're doing. Um, it's better than 
this media station. It's better than that media. Now, I don't really necessarily like to put it on that comparison. I don't like to say X is better than Y or whatever. Uh, but I think it does say something about a gap in media. People want to read about their community. People want to learn about the nitty gritty issues that are happening in their government. Uh, while they might be small issues to other people, I mean, when Wheeling City Council is in, you know, June of 2023, uh, spending the or allocating the last bit of their ARPA money, uh, that's a big story. That's an important story. People want to understand where that money went. Uh, people want to understand where it like the rest of it might be going. Uh, they want to hear why their counselors are defending what they're going to allocate it for. Uh, and that's important. And that's not necessarily a story you're going to hear uh, unless you are going to buy a paper, which more and more, sadly, people are not buying papers. So uh, there is a gap. We've got, like you said, great media in the state. We've got people at these organizations in spite sometimes of the own whoever owns these stations or these papers that we've got people there that really care want to be out there uh but there's still always been in this community across the state i see it online too that there is like a contempt uh people hold a lot of uh mixed feelings about media and they want more and they want more uh uh more broad stories so there's a gap i like to think i'm filling it uh sadly because it's a part-time job i can't fill it all but uh one story at a time Right. Justice Hudson joining us. That's the key, though, is the thing. And, and I've been doing some mentoring with younger folks that are looking to get into media. So I tell like regular people, those like, well, wait a minute, if you have a Facebook, you have a platform. If you have a Twitter account or X or whatever we're going to call it next month, you have a platform. If you have any kind of social media and you have people that are friends and family following, you have a platform. So you can talk to them about these events. I want to something that you touched on in your piece, you wrote a piece in Hudson editorial about your 50th story that you've posted. We're going to link to his Substack, by the way, all his content is free. You can donate if you want to, but it's free content. We're going to link to it. And we're also recommending it off our Substack, hertel.substack.com. His is the Hudson editorial, uh, com. You mentioned it here. I think this is an important piece because you talked about your journey in doing this of, well, maybe this ain't for me. Maybe I shouldn't be at a meeting. And I know you talked about being a little bombastic in your personality and you even had doubts. But you said this, you said, looking back on it, the self-absorbed thing was to not get involved and to not do it because you had the capability to do it and the time to do it. What would you tell people? Look, again, we're not saying you should quit your job and go do folk reporting because there's, let's be honest, there's not a lot of money in it. Can you take one day a week to write about your school system? Can you take an hour a week to write about a local issue? Heiko, where I went to church growing up, they're still waiting on decent running water. So I always harp on it every couple of months. And everybody's like, why are you talking about that? And I'm like, well, because if you live there and you get sludge water out of your faucet, it's a big deal. Those kind of little things, those are an hour, two hours, a couple minutes out of your week. But that's important piece of the local small level of journalism that just about anybody can really do. And I found it interesting that you put it that way that, you know, the self-absorbed thing is to not share that platform that you have, no matter how small it may be. Yeah. And you know, that, that comment came because, uh, this folk reporters program is an initiative by black by God. 
And when I, and I love Black by God and they do great work. But when I first learned about that program, I thought, oh, well, I'm white. So it's not for me. And now I laugh about it because it's a, it's a funny notion. There, there was, uh, it was a self-absorbed, like, uh, like I put in the article, it was, a. uh, an attitude that I had that uh, this is not for me, for one, because it's not uh, a paper. Uh, I didn't want to step on people's toes at the at the organization. Uh, but at a certain point, it just came down to the fact that uh, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? Uh, like you said, you know, it's not a huge time commitment. I got to admit, like when you're attending a meeting, uh, here in the city of Wheeling, that's about an hour for a government meeting. Sometimes they're two hours. I went to a school board meeting a couple of weeks ago that was two and a half hours because of executive session. That's a lot of free time to spend. Uh, and then if you're coming home and you're writing those things up, that could take you another hour, hour and a half, uh, depending on the amount of fact checking you have to do. So, yeah, I mean, if you if you've got a platform and like you say, with social media, everybody has a platform. Uh, I think it, it it behooves me to say, why would you not want to share these things out? Uh, it's hard to put your neck out there. It's hard. It, it's scary. Uh, but once you do it, you'll get a lot of reward out of it. Uh, there are so many untold stories that, you know, to the point where, you know, I start doing little write-ups about the city government and I'll even branch out to some community stories. I'll get people in my community saying, you should write about this. You should look into that. You should talk to this person for a story. And it doesn't always go somewhere. Uh, I mean, this is beyond part-time. Like you said, there's not much money in it, uh, especially for a folk reporter, even if you were a paid reporter. Um, but at the same time, there's something really uh, rewarding about typing up a city council or going to the Human Rights Commission here in town typing up something about it, hitting post, a couple days later, somebody in my circle or somebody in my community says, wow, I wouldn't have known about the mural projects that the Arts and Cultural Commission are approving. It looks really cool, really excited to see that. Thanks for writing about it. It's little stuff like that that makes it worth it, uh, that makes you want to keep going. Uh, there are definitely parts that make you want to stop because government can sometimes be frustrating uh the people that you work with like i say sometimes you're rubbing shoulders with people who have a real um sense of uh you know don't mess with me this is my craft and uh and, and it, it can be intimidating but uh maybe not for everybody uh if you just go you show up you put your head down maybe you keep your head up uh you take your notes you ask your questions, uh, you'll be amazed how much not only you'll learn, you'll be amazed at the feedback you'll get. Uh, and ultimately, you're going to be teaching a lot of people around you, which is important. People got to feel connected to their government. People got to feel connected to their community. That's how I think we improve as a nation is if we don't let all politics is local. So if you start focusing on the local, if you start getting the word out from what's going on in your small community, uh, I think it's going to make your life better. It might make your friends' lives better. Uh, you might get more creative with uh, maybe how you at, talk to your politicians. It's really not that scary once you do it. So I would encourage anyone and everybody to do it. Take a couple hours out of your week 
uh, attend a meeting, get some eyes on it, and then go from there. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Yep, and there's a ton of resources out there. You talked about Black by God runs a whole folk reporter. I know Pointer, which is one of the journalism things, they have tons of just free resources on here's how you research, here's how you do this, here's how you do this. And they're all, a lot of that stuff's free. So, again, if you want to do this stuff, reach out to us. We're happy to talk to you about it. Justice Hudson, one last thing before we let you go, I wanted to point out, you've done a couple of things, and you just touched on this. It's local news, but sometimes local news branches out. You, got it, you did a great little audio thing with people who had chosen to come to West Virginia. You did those interviews at Little Day. You talk about, you know, discovering a buried rail car that needs cleaned up, just old diesel fuel and grease and various things. And then every now and then something national happens, like Secretary Pete Buttigieg shows up in town. And you can put a little bit of a local flavor on that, whereas, you know, somebody that's not local might write a blurb. They don't understand why he walked down that particular street and that sort of thing. Just kind of nutshell of what you've been doing at Hudson Editorial, folks that can follow you. And also, so people that want to maybe start doing this in the future can look at and see examples like, Oh, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. That it's funny. You say that too, because when, uh, after Pete Buttigieg came, I went online and, you know, there's a whole like media circus where people come to town and then the opposite side of the political spectrum. I think it's probably a lot of bots saying, well, it doesn't even look like people are working downtown. This was a staged trip. And it's funny because it's like, if you live in Wheeling, you know that work is going on. They have torn up every street in downtown. It is like, some would call it a war zone. I don't think I'd go that far. I think that's a bit, whatever. Anyways, uh, at the Hudson uh, editorial, 
Uh, I've really been spending the last six months attending local meetings, uh, but also going to community events, uh, trying to think, uh, you know, I follow my local media. And so I try to think, what is something that they're not talking about? Is there somebody that they that they're not speaking to or is there an event that they're not covering that I can? And even if they are covering it, there are so many times I show up somewhere and WTRF7's a camera person there I to the point where I have one of their reporters like I've got her number I every time I see her I give her a smile because I see her almost at every single thing I decide to go to and cover uh, from small dog festivals that happen in town all the way up to the ribbon cuttings for uh, police headquarters she's everywhere and I love it uh, so even when there are other media showing up I think it's still important to add your own nuance everyone's got their skill everyone's got their 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 uh, knack to writing once you start it you'll find it um so i really encourage people to do that i, I encourage people if government meetings are your thing and, and i think government meetings are very attainable there's typically there's only one or two a month uh for around the state that's about how it goes very very part-time uh, typically in the evenings, which makes it a little easier too. But if that's not your thing, why don't you think about what else is going on in my community that needs covered? It can be something like my neighbors have dirty water or uh, the hillside slipped or, you know, coal mines opening back up, coal mines closing. Uh, closing. Uh, or it could be something small like local event, like local organization puts on uh community food drive. It could be something uh, uplifting. News doesn't always have to be, I th and I think this has been my biggest lesson, news does not always need to be hyper-partisan. It does not always need to be uh, extremely negative uh, or worrying. Now, obviously, because we know this through Facebook, negativity wins. Uh, if you put something negative on someone's screen, they're clicking on it. But news uh, in the past, there used to be entire sections just for positive news. So if that's your thing, do it. If your thing is holding people to power, do it. Spend a couple hours. Uh, that's what I do. I spend a couple hours, I write it. You can publish it on Substack for free. Uh, you can just put out a PDF file if you want to. I would say probably go with something like Substack or Medium to do it. Uh, or you could just tweet out a thread. A lot of people do that nowadays. They sit in the meeting. As it's getting told, they're tweeting out a thread. So. Uh, it's not much work. It, it's mostly a lot of um, mental work to get yourself to that point to where you feel confident. Uh, you kind of uh, you, you're not scared that you're going to mess up. And, you know, if you do mess up, you're able to fix it. Uh, people are willing to help you out along the way. Uh, I really encourage people to just get out there, do it, get your eyes on things and give it a shot. Yeah, best way to say it. Justin Hudson joining us. Let folks know where they can find the Hudson editorial. Let them know what you've got coming up. You got a couple projects. We're going to highlight uh, in the show notes on our Substack the celebrating 50 stories that you've done already. Tell folks what you're going to be doing for the next 50 and tell them where they can find you both on social media and the Substack until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Awesome. So you can go to thehudsoneditorial.com. It'll take you straight to the Substack. You can find me on Twitter, which is Justice Hudson 97 Twitter for now, X tomorrow. If it's still open after that, I post there too. Uh, looking forward to the next 50 posts. What I think I'm going to do is I'm going to continue doing my government posts. 
I've got a project about a local art studio, which opened up a, a art gallery for the month called Clientele as a PSYOP, which features a lot of uh, cryptids and conspiracy theory themed art. That was really cool. Uh, and I'm going to speak to uh, LGBTQ uh, West Virginians and kind of get their get their uh, find out what their pulse is like, uh, uh, their ear on the ground, see what's going on in the community. Uh, and how they feel about the current climate. Uh, I've got some exciting articles coming up, not only the government reporting, but as things go out throughout the year, uh, I'll be writing little special features. So it's worth a look. Like uh, we said, it's free. You can subscribe and pay for, if you want to, but everything that I make is free because I really think that people should, if they want to read it, they should be able to read it. So the Hudson House or the HudsonEditorial.com, check it out. Hudson Housewares will be a spinoff. We'll get to that later. That's when you get your merch line going, right? That's when I get my business. That's when I get my farm. <laughs> I, that's when I get everything. There you go. Big dreams in a small town. There, That's free. You can go ahead and write that up. I'll just give you that one. <laughs> Justice Hudson, thank you so much for the time today, sir. We'll be reading along. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Welcome back to her tell. Okay, she's one of our favorites. We have her all the time. We talk history with her. We talk culture stuff with her. She'd rather talk about fashion, but we don't do that here because I have the cargo shorts would just offend her and her English sensibilities. She's also one of them uh, loyalists to the crown, but we'll forgive her that. Sarah Stooks back on the program. How are you, ma'am? I'm good. Thank you. Proud to be British. Long live the king. Uh, yeah, you got a king now. You, you didn't have a king last time I talked to you. You were just starting to get one when we uh, last spoke. I miss the queen, but he's doing all right. Yeah, don't we all? Uh, she writes at electionsdaily.com and a couple other places. UK Mallard, some other folks. She does good work. You've been doing these things. You always do these lists about presidents, and I love them. You did the dead presidents list. I actually want to start with the last one you did. It's a two-part series. It's elections-daily.com. We're going to link to it. Notes will be in the Substack. Make sure you check out the full pieces and all her other great work. The last presidential funeral we had was George H.W. Bush. I was actually at this one. I took my two youngest kids. We went to the rotunda. We stood in line. We were in line about maybe five and a half hours. It was really cold. Um, but you weave through the visitor center. We started actually in front. Of, they had the queue in front of the Supreme Court by about six rows deep, snaking through. Took about five and a half hours. Got in, got up through the rotunda, actually you know, walked through the rotunda. It was an amazing experience. I had my two younger kids with me. They were younger at the time. I highly recommend that experience to everybody, whatever your politics or whatever, being in line, talking to people all over the country. That was an amazing experience, the state funeral for George H.W. Bush. It was also kind of, for a lot of folks, symbolic, kind of the last president of the World War II era and that generation. There was a lot of symbolism in that. I was in D.C. for the funeral. It was a massive funeral. They had the city shut down. These things are big, big deals. We haven't had a lot of them. We've had, you know, recent memory, we've had Ford and Reagan and Bush. Um, Carter uh, is, of course, on hospice, so he'll probably be next. God forbid something happens to somebody else. These are big deals when they happen, aren't they? 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, the most recent one is 2018, which is a pretty long time ago. And, you know, obviously, you know, say Jimmy Carter is in hospice and he is nearly 99. So, you, you know, you can imagine it. Whereas here, our prime ministers are younger. There's nobody older than 80 odd. So, you know, roughly we've probably got, you know, hopefully a while to go. But, yeah, last one was Bush. And I think because, you know, it depends on the president. Some presidents have had really tiny funerals. Then you've had, like, probably people like George Washington where everything was shut down. It, I think it depends on the president, especially if it's sudden. I mean, they had to plan Kennedy's funeral within a couple of days. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because you, you've done other lists about assassinated presidents, presidents that have died in office, everything from Kennedy getting shot to just, you know, good old-fashioned pneumonia. We've had presidents die in office. It's something that's one of those things that, like, even though historically we know it can happen, we talk about, you know, the vice president's one heartbeat away from the presidency. You never expect it. Whether it's a living, like it's one of those gradual but sudden things, ain't it? You just don't expect these presidents to die, but they're all going to die, and they tend to kind of die in groups. And especially lately, we have older men being presidents, so we're probably going to have a couple more of these in the near future, one way or the other. We just don't think about it that way, though, do we? But historically, this is kind of common. Presidents, on average, actually live longer. If you look at people like quite a few have made it over 90, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Reagan, Ford, Carter, Bush, you know, quite quite a few have actually lasted quite a long time. But yet the ones who have died in office, you know, well, one Harry Harrison was 61, which is fairly old for the time, but he was also stupid enough to walk around D.C. without a coat. So that's, you know, here or there. You know, Zachary Taylor was fairly young, healthy because of the water. Lincoln was shot, Garfield was shot, McKinley shot. Um, well, Hoover was in his 50s, very sudden. FDR was very poorly, but he'd been president for like forever. And Kennedy was young, and then one day, bam, boom, headshot. It's all very sudden, but when you've got someone like Biden who's over 80, I mean, God forbid something happens, but if it did, it wouldn't be as much of a surprise because he is an older gentleman. Yeah, we have Biden, who's over 80 already. Trump's pushing 80. Um, you you would assume, unless they live well into their 90s, which, you know, God bless them if they both do, fine by me. We're going to have more funerals. Let's talk about some of the surprising ones, though, because there's an underlying thing here, too. And you talked about this in other columns that you wrote that we can look at. We've had presidents that have been in very, very poor health. Wilson was incapacitated by a stroke for a wide swath of his presidency. JFK may not have lived through his presidency. They really hit how bad his health was. Um, Eisenhower had a heart attack. We've had other presidents. FDR, of course, died in office, had all kinds of health problems. We've had a lot of presidents with health problems, but those were always hidden. They were always covered up or excused away. The modern age, you can't really get away with that. When Trump had to go for COVID, that was heavily covered. When Biden has any kind of a fall or a slip or a moment, we saw the viral video of Mitch McConnell, the, the, lead, the Senate majority leader, minority leader now, excuse me, the Senate minority leader, where he has that frozen moment and he's had, you know, health issues and stroke. We see these older people in public office. It's a different age now where you can't hide that stuff. Maybe we should be talking about this more. I did write an, a piece about this last year about uh, called America the Ancient about how old, you know, a lot of your politicians are and like the list of who was over 80 in Congress and, and sort of comparisons like Joe Biden is older than Dan Quayle. Trump was born 
a month before Bill Clinton presidency very separated Rishi Sunak is younger than all but one of Biden's kids you know it's such a massive age gap it's I mean there are reasons behind you know younger people want to enter politics older people vote for people their age people like Nancy Pelosi probably have a lot of time and funding behind them but you know it's it's worrying you know Diane Feinstein as well I know she had trouble recently the there's questions about her health and it brings up the idea of term limits as well people i know nikki haley's a strong advocate for that and i'm sure quite a few other politicians are whether that will ever be implemented i don't know but you know they're like my grandparents age i can't imagine my grandparents in congress or even the white house and i'm sure many people with grandparents or even parents the same age would think the same way Yeah, Sarah Stuck joining us. It's interesting. If we have Trump and Biden again, and this was true the last time they faced off in 2020, their combined age would reach back to the Civil War. That's how it's old like, they are combined. It's like, it's just staggering how close they are to, I mean, Biden's closer nearly to Lincoln's assassination, his birth, than to now. And it's truly astounding. I mean, it's like, having you know thomas jefferson was what 83 when he died can you imagine him still being president at 83 it's mad yeah sarah stuck joining us what's one or two presidential deaths when you sat down and did this list that kind of struck out to you maybe ones that maybe a presidency or a president that folks just don't talk about or maybe a famous one that they're just not aware of how they died which ones kind of stuck out to you well i think you know you always remember the assassinations and the deaths in office, but quite a few sort of died quite quietly. Nixon and Ford both died. And Nixon was in a really interesting one because he was, you know, castigated for Watergate and he was a prize for years, but then he sort of came back as an elder statesman and had a very respectable funeral with lots of mourners, which is, you know, fascinating because you think, oh, everyone probably hated him. But he sort of, you know, historically, people still attack him, but there are people who are usually lower down on the list of worst presidents. You know, James Buchanan's usually absolute bottom, and he didn't, you know, bug his en enemies HQ. So, yeah, he's the one that sort of he died quietly. And not to make you feel old, I wasn't even alive when he died. The timeline on some of these are interesting. One thing you pointed out, you think about Lyndon Johnson and Harry Truman being kind of different eras of presidents, but they died a month apart. So you yeah. have, when you look through these histories, you have little nuggets like this that are really, you know, Reagan died really close to Ford. There was kind of this cluster of them because Reagan, but Reagan was sequestered for the last 10 years of his life because of the Alzheimer's and things like that. It's interesting the little tidbits and nuggets that you find in these stories like this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, LBJ was very unhealthy, so no doubt contributed to an early death. You know, he had heart attacks, he smoked, he ate rubbish, you know. So, you know, things like that. Then you have someone like James Monroe, who was the, uh, Madison, sorry, the biggest hypochondriac, and he was about 85 when he died. So, you know, it was pretty amazing. I was always worried about his health and all sickly, but he made it to 85, which, you know, back in the early 1800s is a very good age. 
And then presidents who had reputations for being rather clean living. Of course, Lyndon B. Johnson was a very profane, hard charging man. So it probably didn't really shock people that he had a third heart attack and died. But you have guys like Calvin Coolidge and Warren Harding who had a reputation that was pretty solid, but they both died very young, 57 and 60 respectively. Theodore Roosevelt was 60 and he was, you know, outdoorsy man. He didn't, he, well, he said because he got really ill when they were charting uh, the Amazon and he said it's taken a few, a good decade off my life and he was probably right in that respect. But, you know, Coolidge died suddenly, had a thrombosis, embolism, same with Roosevelt. So, yeah, some just sort of, because there are health conditions, you know, Hoover, I mean, so Harding had a heart condition that nobody knew about, you know, these things happen. You just don't know. And obviously back going even further than that, there's still questions about people's health because you can't really, you, you can't know, especially when it's older illnesses that you don't really have anymore, like diphtheria or typhoid, which, you know, obviously still happen, but, not in the Western world. So it's less understood. Yeah. Sarah's still joining us. Okay. Historically, outside of the assassinations and those things, probably the most famous one, since it you know, involves the founding fathers, is probably Jefferson and Adams. It's such a cool story. It's been told a million times, but it's just fascinating that they died in the story. You tell the story because it's everybody learns it in school, of course. But it's just it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, this can't have been accidental, right? It's fascinating. They had sort of a symmetry, you know. They weren't too far apart in age. And like they were frenemies, you know, like their politics were different. They would eventually attack each other, but at the same time the Adamses look at looked after Tom uh, Jefferson's daughter while they were both all in Paris, and that's her death is what caused Abigail to send a letter to Jefferson and they sort of over the decades Adams tend to send more than Jefferson would sort of talk, not talk but Jefferson's last words were, were um, allegedly is it the fourth but it was probably something else is it the fourth it was near his last words but it sounds a bit better as last words doesn't it and obviously Adams died later in the day not knowing Jefferson had died and said oh Thomas Jefferson survives then pegged it and it was July the 4th, 1826, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence, which is like the perfect, almost the perfect day. It's so, you know, you couldn't write it. If that was in a film, you'd think, oh, that wouldn't happen. But yeah, it's kind of amazing. And they both lived very long lives, which, you know, people like George Washington didn't live that long and people after them. So they were sort of, well, John Adams was the first to make 90. It would be a very long time before anybody would. Yeah. And then you have people like Andrew Jackson who lived long enough to be photographed. So it's yeah. really interesting how history, it's always, history is both further away and closer than we ever think it is, isn't it? Uh, Sarah Stook joining us. I promised I would ask you this when I got you back on, but I have to explain to your British sensibility because you don't have bison in the UK. Just because it's friend shape doesn't mean it's friend. Leave the fluffy murder cows alone. But I promised I would let you talk about the fluffy murder cows and the bison and tourists who will not leave the bison alone. I mean, I have a thing where I like to breathe and live. So, you know, I wouldn't go and hop a fence and try and cuddle a bison. But you, they are so cute. It's like you see these wild animals like snow leopards and tigers and you think, if they weren't going to kill me, you would want to cuddle them so much. It's like a giant version of my cat. And it's probably friendly because my cat doesn't like me very much. 
They are big. They are noisy. They do a lot of grunting and other noises that we won't talk about on a family-friendly program. They're extremely hairy, so they're very dirty. They smell bad. They have very small brains. They're very large. They're very fast, and they're very cranky. You need to just leave them alone. We call them fluffy murder cows for a reason. Yeah, but it's very, it's very. Let's be fair. It's very, a very American thing. People go and pet wild animals that they shouldn't. It, it's, it's like the most American thing ever. Let's be realistic here. It's. Yeah, uh, the, the, the most American thing ever is we have a tourist industry that's based on charging people to fly here and get in dangerous situations with animals. That's pretty American. We like that. So that works out good. Uh, Sarah Stooks back with us. Uh, real quick before we let you go, we talked about um, Harding for just a minute, but you're actually going to be writing a little bit more about Warren G. Harding. You find him interesting. Well, by the time this goes out, hopefully it will have been the 2nd of August, which is the 100th anniversary of Harding's death. So I've written a piece about him. Hopefully it should be out on that day, sort of chronicling his life, his politics, his relationship with his wife, um, his illegitimate child mistresses, his presidency, his death, and then the legacy, which has actually changed quite a bit. People actually are more sympathetic to him. You know, at first everyone was really sad he died. He was very popular and stuff about Teapot Dome and his illegitimate child came out. But now sort of historians are sort of softer about him in a way. They say, you know, he wasn't the absolute worst. But, you know, he did some good things. He helped the economy. He was very anti-racist, which when you're after Woodrow Wilson is a miracle because that dude was very racist. Yeah, people, if you haven't been familiar with one of the big keys to the racial strife in America is Woodrow Wilson's presidency. You really need to read up on it, especially how he treated black veterans coming back from World War One. something I've personally take great offense to but you need to read up on all that stuff sarah stuck always enjoy talking history with you my friend let folks know where they can read you follow you we're going to link to everything we just talked about let folks know how they can keep up with you till we get you back on her tell again oh well elections daily i'm doing a weekly uh, sort of diary of nikki haley's presidential campaign i know that others are doing ones for like people like ron santis and trump so also make sure you read theirs uh mallard i'm doing about consorts of england and great britain which is always fun because I liked it about historical. That's a British term. You got to explain what the consort is because. Well, it's like the first lady, but for the king or the queen. Because obviously we've had queens, which you've never had a female leader, though. Well, we're working on it. Three elected, <laughs> even though one lasted like a week. There's <laughs> <laughs> uh, stuff. Love having you, my friend. Good talking. We'll have you back again soon. All right. Great. Bye. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> And that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. We got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you 
anything more than a click. Herdtel.substack.com, we sure appreciate it. And follow us on social media, Herdtel Show, on the Twitter, Four for the Fires, my personal Twitter handle. No, we're not going to call it X, but if you could share us and let folks know that our programs are worth checking out, we sure would appreciate it. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you real soon for the next Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.